This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Coming Closer to God. In the first half, Dale G. Renlund shares his address, Experience God's Love. Then in the second half, Rabbi Harold S. Kushner speaks on the human soul's quest for God. Brothers and sisters, thank you for being here. Thank you for taking your time to be with us. I'm grateful to be here with my wife. People always like me better if they've met her first. I used to be a physician. She used to be a lawyer. So we have a hard time making friends. (laughs) So we're grateful to be here with our friends at BYU. I'm actually on official probation for my wife barring me from telling lawyer jokes. It's because I've abused the privilege. (laughs) I'd like to compare our physical and spiritual health in a discussion about receptors. Our physical health depends on hormones and their receptors. Hormones, such as thyroid hormones, insulin, and many others, are substances produced in glands and then transported in the bloodstream to specific cells, and they stimulate those cells by interacting with specific receptors. Illness can occur when either the gland doesn't produce enough hormone or if the receptor's dysfunctional. You can imagine that the signs and symptoms of an illness can be similar in either case. Hormone and other treatments can resolve or mitigate the illness in many situations. There is a type of receptor dysfunction that is eternally consequential, the inability to sense God's love and feel His Spirit. God's love is infinite and perfect. There has never been, nor will there ever be, a deficiency of God's love. The Apostle Paul said, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. But what do you do if you don't feel the love of Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ? I know with certainty that the problem is not with their love. The problem is with your receptors for their love. If you have dysfunction of your receptors for God's love, you can lose your way and succumb to dangers such as hopelessness, helplessness, and loneliness. If you experience dysfunction of these receptors, God's influence in your life is minimized. With complete dysfunction, you will not sense their love or their caring concern for you. The Prophet Mormon described this condition in his people. He lamented, For behold, they are without Christ and God in the world. 
They were once a delightsome people, and they had Christ for their shepherd. Yea, they were led even by God the Father. But now, behold, they are led about by Satan, even as chaff is driven before the wind, or as a vessel is tossed about upon the waves without sail or anchor or without anything wherewith to steer her. And even as she is, so are they. Without Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ and their influence in our lives, we have no shepherd. Without them, there is no sail, meaning there is no power. Without them, there is no anchor, meaning there is no stability, especially in times of storm. Without them, there is nothing with which to steer, meaning there is no direction. No power, no stability, and no direction are all consequences of dysfunctional receptors for their love. In my experience, receptor dysfunction for God's love happens slowly and imperceptibly over time, not all at once. I'll relate an embarrassing experience that I didn't tell my wife for years. I learned for myself that I was vulnerable. Because I suspect you might be at risk, too, I'll share my cautionary tale. It highlights this warning by the Savior. But there is a possibility that man may fall from grace and depart from the living God. Therefore, let the Church take heed and pray always, lest they fall into temptation. Yea, and even let those who are sanctified take heed also. After I finished medical school, my wife, daughter, and I moved to Baltimore, Maryland for further training at Johns Hopkins Hospital. At that time, the training years were brutal, time-intensive, and exhausting. Toward the end of my first year, I was weary. Because interns worked every day and every second or third night, I worked every Sunday and was able to attend church only about half the time. Our ward met in a suburb of Baltimore at 2.30 in the afternoon. We lived across the street from the hospital and had only one car. Some Sundays I could finish my work and join my wife and daughter as they left for the meetings at 2 p.m. Other Sundays I could not. One Sunday I could tell that if I really hurried with my work, I'd be able to go with my wife and daughter to church. But then I had this thought. If I slowed down a little bit and waited, I wouldn't get home until after my wife and daughter had departed. Then I could skip church and take a nap. It mortifies me to say that I did exactly that. I walked home at 2.15 and laid down on the couch, but I couldn't sleep. I was profoundly disturbed. I'd always loved going to church. I'd always felt a burning testimony of Christ's living reality. But on that day, the intensity wasn't there. It wasn't hard to figure out why. I had stopped consistently doing some personal private acts 
of devotion. My routine was that I'd get up in the morning, say a prayer, and go to work. Sometimes there wouldn't be a distinction between the end of the day and the beginning of the next. I'd work through the night and the next day, come home late that second day, and fall asleep without a prayer and without reading anything in the scriptures. The following day, the cycle started again. I had allowed my receptors for God's love to become dull so that the things of the Spirit were less urgent and less important. With this realization, I got off the couch, knelt on the floor, and pleaded with God for forgiveness. I begged for help. As I did, a plan formulated in my mind and heart to change the pattern of behavior. I began with simple reminders to myself. On my daily to-do list, I started including morning and evening prayers. I brought a paperback book of Mormon to my cubicle in the hospital and included scripture reading on that to-do list. Some nights, the scripture reading was short, just a few verses before midnight. Sometimes my prayers were offered in unusual locations. But I read the scriptures daily. I prayed daily. My plan included a commitment that I'd never miss an opportunity to partake of the sacrament. Never. As I enacted my new course of action, the intensity returned and my testimony burned brightly again. I shudder to think what would have happened if I hadn't gotten off that couch that Sunday afternoon. My life would have been very different. Instead, Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ became central to my life again. My receptors for God's love and my affinity for the Spirit improved. The inability to sense God's love can stem from sin or from not pressing forward on the covenant path. The inability can also be due to physical or mental illness. For instance, clinical anxiety and depression require professional help. God expects us to seek professional help when indicated. Remember Captain Moroni's rhetorically sarcastic question to Pahoran, Or do you suppose that the Lord will still deliver us while we do not make use of the means which the Lord has provided for us? Prayers in this situation may seem somewhat insincere to God as their manifestations of faith without works. In my situation, absent mental illness, I followed a threefold prescription for my dysfunctional receptors for God's love. The first is what President Russell M. Nelson refers to as increased purity, exact obedience. This means repentance. If you're doing something that's causing receptor dysfunction, repent. Repentance is a joyful process. Remember that God doesn't really care who you were and what you did. He cares who you are 
what you're doing, and who you are becoming. As President Nelson said, repentance is not punishment. The feeling of being penalized is engendered by Satan. He tries to block us from looking to Jesus Christ, who stands with open arms, hoping and willing to heal, forgive, cleanse, strengthen, purify, and sanctify us. If you feel you've done something unredeemable or irreparable, or that you're too far gone, that feeling is not coming from the Holy Ghost. It's engendered by faulty thinking or by Satan. The second is what President Nelson refers to as earnest seeking, daily feasting on the words of Christ in the Book of Mormon. Feasting, not nibbling, on the words of Christ, especially in the Book of Mormon, has the power to dramatically change receptors for God's love. Studying the words of Christ will put you in a position to begin having experiences with God. It did for me. This advice from Paul to Timothy applies to you. And that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Third, I made sure that I'd never miss an opportunity to partake of the sacrament so that I could have the Holy Ghost with me. The Savior said to the Nephites regarding partaking of the sacrament, And if ye shall always do these things, blessed are ye, for you are built upon my rock. If you don't, he said, then you are not built upon my rock, but are built upon a sandy foundation. And when the rain descends and the floods come and the winds blow and beat upon you, you shall fall. Remember that he said, when rain, wind, and floods come, not if. They come and they come to all of us. But if we have partaken of the sacrament conscientiously and worthily, then the blessings come that we won't fall. An added insight about the sacrament comes from President Nelson's remarks at the Mission Leadership Seminar in June of this year. After partaking of the sacrament, President Nelson said, I made a covenant as I partook of the sacrament that I would be willing to take upon me the name of Jesus Christ and to obey His commandments. Often I hear the expression that we partake of the sacrament to renew covenants made at baptism. While that's true, it's much more than that. I've made a new covenant. You have made a new covenant. If we approach the sacrament with a broken heart and contrite spirit, the way we expect a new convert to approach baptism, God renews the blessings of baptism for us, including the cleansing effect. President Nelson continued, Now, in return for which, God makes the statement 
that we will always have His Spirit to be with us. What a blessing. This is the three-part prescription for dysfunctional receptors for God's love. Repentance, scripture study, and partaking of the sacrament to have the Holy Ghost with us. If we don't address this dysfunction early on, we'll end up past feeling. And that is spiritually fatal. Addressing our dysfunctional receptors for God's love restores power, stability, and direction in our lives. The prognosis when this receptor dysfunction is treated is excellent. Give yourself an early Christmas present and get off the couch like I did that Sunday afternoon long ago. Make sure your receptors for God's love are fully functional. Then, as you continue doing those personal, private acts of devotion, you won't slip back into receptor dysfunction. I know that Jesus Christ has all power to save everyone that believes on His name and brings forth fruit meet for repentance. I know that our Heavenly Father's message to us is this, If ye will repent and harden not your hearts, then will I have mercy upon you through mine only begotten Son. Therefore, whosoever repenteth and hardeneth not his heart, he shall have claim on mercy through mine only begotten Son unto a remission of his sins, and these shall enter into my rest. This is my prayer for all of us. I pray that God will watch over and bless you and help you throughout this Christmas season and throughout your lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Coming Closer to God. We've just heard from Dale G. Renland. After the break, we'll return with Rabbi Harold S. Kushner for The Human Soul's Quest for God. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Coming Closer to God. Next is Harold S. Kushner, Rabbi Laureate of Temple Israel in Natick, Massachusetts at the time of this address, titled The Human Soul's Quest for God. I wish I had learned earlier in my career that the secret of success for a clergyman is keep the talk the same and come up with a new congregation every week. (laughs) And I'm especially gratified by your invitation to come here to Provo and to Brigham Young University. I've been looking forward to this visit ever since we had fixed the appointment. This is the only place in America where I get to be a Gentile. In fact, along those lines, I met with some of the students at 9 o'clock, and when we'd finished and were just chatting afterwards, one of them came up and said, Now, Rabbi Kushner, as a Jew, I know you can be objective about this. What do you think about the major theological confrontation that's coming up this Saturday when BYU plays Notre Dame? 
I can picture some of the undergraduates going up to some of the leaders of the church and the community and saying, you know, this is really a big game, national television exposure. Don't you think it would really be wonderful for the faith if we could win? Could you put in an extra prayer for us or something? <laughs> and the administrators would have to smile and say, gee, I'm sorry, we're in sales, not management. Now, if we're in sales, what is it we're selling? What is it we are really offering people when we make the claim that their lives will be richer and deeper and more satisfying if they're committed to a faith system? What is it that belief in God, belief in religion, involvement with the religious community give a person? My main thesis this morning is a very straightforward one. We in the 20th century have become so sophisticated, so modern, so enmeshed in the trappings of the modern world that we have been enriched in a lot of ways and impoverished in a lot of important ways. And I want to put the spotlight this morning on what we lose out on, what we miss when we become modern, so modern that there is no room for faith in our lives. The first gift of the religious commitment, I'm going to have to dust off a word which you don't very often hear these days, and perhaps it is a sign of the, the imbalance of the late 20th century that this word has become so old-fashioned. The word is reverence. Being in the presence of a power so overwhelming that it defines who you are, that you feel small but you don't feel diminished. It's not fear. When you're afraid, you're overawed by something and you want to run away. When you feel reverent, you're overawed, but you want to come closer. It's the sense you get when you walk into a cathedral and the architecture says to you, no matter how important you may be out there, in the presence of God, you're really very small. Story about what has happened to reverence in our time. You living here in Provo, at the foot of the mountains, going to BYU, you don't have to be reminded there is something about a mountain that uplifts the human soul. It seems to speak of the effort of the earth to rise up to heaven to meet God halfway, which is why revelations take place at mountaintops. The story is told of the first two white settlers to travel to Seattle to cross the country and to see Mount Rainier. And they looked at it and they were absolutely stunned by this beautiful symmetrical snow-capped mountain in the northwest and they responded as typical Americans would respond, gee, that's beautiful, let's climb it. Let's show that we're stronger than the mountain. They went to the local Indian tribe and they said, we'd like to hire a guide to lead us up to the top of the mountain. The Indian said, I'm sorry, we can't do that. That's our holy mountain. We believe the gods live at a lake of fire, apparently an extinct volcano at the top of the mountain, and it's not proper for us to intrude on the home of the gods by climbing to the mountaintop. The two settlers said, no, you guys don't seem to understand. We're offering you real money to lead us up to the top of the mountain. The Indian said, no, you don't understand. There are some things which are not for sale, and the home of the gods is one of them. But the two settlers kept on insisting and adding and offering the price, and finally they found an Indian guide who said he would lead them. He led them around astray for a while, down into valleys and uphills, trying to tire them out so they'd give up, but they were persistent. So he led them partway up Mount Rainier, and he said, my religion forbids me to go any further. You're on your own. He thought he'd never see them again, but these guys were very determined. 
They came to the top of the mountain, planted a flag, took pictures of each other at the peak, came down again. That story was told to me by a forest ranger in Mount Rainier National Park outside of Seattle. She told us the story to make the point about the courage and the dedication of the two mountain climbers. But the message I got from that story was a very different one. I felt very sad that we are so good in this century at putting out sacred fires. We are so good at minimizing the domain of the gods, intruding on holy space and claiming it for our own, until we end up with a lot to feel proud about as men and nothing to inspire us, no sense of awe for that which is beyond us. I would remind you that in Scripture, idol worship does not refer to bowing down to statues. Give the ancients a little bit more credit than that. They knew the statue was not God. It was a representation, a symbol of God. Idol worship is not bowing to statues. Idol worship is treating the human as if it were the ultimate. And that, it seems to me, is the sin of idolatry that we commit today. Technology is the enemy of reverence because technology is the worship of the man-made. And ultimately, the worship of the man-made limits our ability to worship the divine. I have no objections to technology. I am very grateful for the jet plane which brought me from Boston to Utah in such comfort. I love my computer that helps me write books. I am grateful to the medical breakthroughs which have enhanced the life of my family. But when you worship technology as the ultimate, you forget there's anything beyond that, something gets lost. Give you my favorite example of this. Most of you undergraduates will not be able to remember it. Some of the older people in the audience will. Just over 25 years ago, July of 1969, when astronauts walked on the moon for the first time, if you were alive then, you may remember what it was like. The whole country stopped. Everything closed down. Restaurants were deserted. Movie theaters were empty. Everybody stayed home to watch Neil Armstrong set foot on the surface of the moon for the first time. The second time astronauts walked on the moon, we didn't stay home. We said, what time is it going to happen? If I'm back, I'll tune it in. If I miss it, I'll catch it on the news tomorrow. The fourth time astronauts walked on the moon, they had to play a game of simulated lunar golf. Let's see how the golf ball travels in this low-gravity atmosphere, because otherwise people weren't going to watch. You know, what's on Channel 4? Men walking on the moon, I've seen it. What's on the next channel? And finally, they had to send, I believe it was a senator from Utah, and then a school teacher from New Hampshire up in rockets, because otherwise nobody was going to pay attention. Now, here was the greatest technological achievement of all time. To send people to the moon, it stupefies the mind. To be able to calculate exactly where the moon would be, to send a rocket a quarter of a million miles through space to that exact point, to get the astronauts from the mothership onto the lunar landing safely, able to breathe, get them back up to the mothership, return them safely to Earth, an incredible technological achievement. And by the fourth time we saw it, we were bored with it. How often can you look at the mountains around here and not be bored? How long can you sit by the shore of a lake and look out at the water and not feel bored? How frequently can you see a sunset and still be thrilled with it? There is something in the natural world, the God-made world, which knows how to speak to our souls in a way that human technology never can. 
Technology, because it is the worship of the man-made, can never move us like that. Ultimately, it will bore us. Ultimately, we will grow tired of it. But there is something in us that when we have some free time, we want to go out to the mountains. We want to watch the sunset. We want to sit by the shore and look at the water. Something tells us this defines your place in the universe. It gives us the reassuring message. When we have reached the limits of human power and knowledge, there is a greater power which begins where ours leaves off. So that problems we cannot solve are not insoluble so that questions we don't have answers to don't have to remain unanswered. This leads me to the second thing we get out of the faith commitment, out of belief in God. When we say in your tradition and in mine that there is only one God, that is not a mathematical statement, it is a moral statement. To affirm that there is one God is not the census report from heaven. We went up to count divine beings, couldn't come up with more than one. To say that there is only one God is to claim that there is such a thing as right and wrong. If there are many gods, you can't talk about absolute right and wrong. You remember what it's like in the Iliads during the Trojan War? What one God permits, another God forbids. What one God favors, another God denounces. In a world of many equally powerful deities, the issue is not what does God want of us, the issue is, which God shall I serve? Which God has the power to bless and protect me? But if there's a single God, then you can claim he has built standards of right and wrong, of moral good and evil into the world, as fixed as the laws of gravity. You cannot claim it is all right to betray your marriage and commit adultery, even if a majority of the people want it that way any more than you can claim winters should be mild and ice cream should be more nourishing than vegetables. There are some things which simply are there. I have seen only one Clint Eastwood Dirty Harry movie in my life. Uh, I don't remember the name of it, but I was describing the plot to a fellow I know who's a big Clint Eastwood fan, and he gave me the name of four movies which fit that plot. <laughs> but, you know, that's okay. I mean, listen, I'm a rabbi. If there's one thing I understand, it is the legitimacy of telling the same story year after year. <laughs> if we do it in church and synagogue, there's no reason why Clint Eastwood and Sylvester Stallone can't do it in the movies. But what I remember about that Dirty Harry movie, I have never responded to a movie the way I did to that one. I'm sitting there watching it at home on television. My brain is saying to me, why are you wasting time on this junk? This is cheap, manipulative trash. And my gut is saying, yeah, blow them away. <laughs> get out the magnum and mow them down. Don't let them get away with it. What I learned from that experience is not that Hollywood knows how to make movies that reach my emotions. I think I understood that. What I learned is there is something inside me, and I suspect there is something inside every one of us, that has an instinctive response to injustice that says that's wrong, don't let them get away with it. There is something in us that recognizes right and wrong, not at the intellectual level, that's against the law, he should be punished, but at the visceral level, at the feeling level, that's wrong, no human being should treat another human being that way. 
and it's there that the sense of morality is born. That these things are not subject to majority vote, these things are not subject to the individual approval of our conscience. There are some things you simply cannot do. God has forbidden them. Once again, you have to understand this is not a restriction. This is not a limitation. There is something about that awareness of right and wrong that enhances our humanity, our morality, our dignity as human beings. At some level, we want to know that what we do matters. What religion gives us when it tells us about good and evil, about right and wrong behavior, is a sense of our significance. You know what it's like? Have you ever had the experience of staying up all Sunday night working on a paper because you want it to be really good, and you hand it in at 9 o'clock Monday morning, and you get it back at 9 o'clock Wednesday morning with a little check mark next to your name and nothing else written on the paper, and it really looks like the professor didn't bother reading it. He just gave you credit for doing the work. How did you feel at that moment? You felt cheated. You felt cheated. Why should I knock myself out if nobody's going to know the difference? This is what the religiously grounded sense of right and wrong gives us, the sense that our deeds matter. Many years ago, I saw a program on television on the Twilight Zone about a man who dies and wakes up a moment later at the end of a long line. At the front of the line, he sees two doors, one marked heaven, one marked hell, and there's an usher. The usher says, move along, keep the line moving, choose either door and walk through. The man says, wait a minute, where's the last judgment? Where am I told if I was a good person or a bad person? Where are all my deeds weighed and measured? The usher looks at him and says, you know, I don't know where that story ever got started. <laughs> we don't do that here. We've never done that here. We don't have the staff to do that here. I mean, look, you've got 10,000 people showing up every minute. I'm supposed to sit down with everyone and go over his whole life? We'd never get anywhere. Now, move along. You're holding up the line. Choose either door and walk through. And the man walks through the door marked hell. Do you understand why? Do you know why he did that? I don't think he did it because he thought he was a bad person and deserved to be punished. I think he did it because he felt like a human being and wanted to be judged. We want to be judged. We want to be taken seriously as moral creatures. I'll give you a very down-home example of how this works. I'm a traditional Jew. I observe the biblical dietary laws. There are certain foods I don't eat. I suspect most of you assume I go around all day saying to myself, Oy, would I love to eat pork chops, but that mean old God won't let me. Not so. Fact of the matter is, I go around all day saying, isn't it incredible? Five billion people on this planet and God cares what I have for lunch? And God cares who I sleep with? And God cares how I earn and spend my money? And God cares what kind of language I use? Do you see what this does? It doesn't diminish me by being told there are certain things I may not do because they are wrong. It enhances me. It turns me into a real human being, somebody whose deeds, whose decisions, whose choices matter at the highest level. I am convinced 
that every human being has an existential need for significance. We want to be taken seriously. That's why it's such a thrill when we get our name in the paper. That's why when you watch the ball games on television, the ball goes into the stands and everybody waves at the camera. That's why they're doing it. If you have been seen on television, you really exist. Otherwise, you're just a rumor. <laughs> Some years ago, I was invited to be the speaker at the annual meeting of a Jewish organization in Philadelphia. And as part of the publicity, they arranged for me to be interviewed on television on the 6 o'clock news just before the dinner meeting. I went right from the TV studio to the hotel where the event was taking place. Chairperson of the event met me there. She said, oh, Rabbi Kushner, I feel so bad. I was working here on the last-minute arrangements. I didn't see you on Channel 3. I said, you do know you're going to be sitting next to me for the next two hours? And she said, yes, but it's not the same. <laughs> we have this need for significance. We do incredible things. We go into medical research. We write books. We invent new patents to know we matter. We do terrible things. People try to assassinate the president, commit crimes, just to know they have an impact on the world. The religious teaching, God cares what you do. There are right ways and wrong ways to live, and they're all taken very seriously. This endows every day, every waking hour of our lives with meaning at the highest level. The third gift of the faith commitment flows from that. If you know that certain things are wrong, and you do them anyway, one of the things religion gives you that you cannot get anywhere else, and one of the things that a decent person needs, is what I would call radical forgiveness, a sense of cleansing from the sense of inadequacy, from the knowledge we have not been the people we should be. Some years ago, I was invited to speak at Johns Hopkins Medical Center in Baltimore, Maryland. I was asked to give a talk at noon to the professional staff, the doctors, the nurses, the social workers, and a public lecture in the evening. After my noon talk, the chief of chaplains at Johns Hopkins Medical Center came over to see me. He said, Rabbi Kushner, we got a patient here who would love to meet you. He read your book. It was very important to him. He wants to know if you could spend 10 minutes talking to him. I want to make this very clear. You're under no obligation to do this. If you would rather not, I'll tell him you were tired and very busy. He'll understand. He's a 32-year-old Episcopal minister, and he's dying of AIDS. I thought for a moment, I said, sure, I'll go talk to him. I followed the chaplain down the corridor, feeling terribly noble and virtuous. You know, I am the Jewish Mother Teresa. <laughs> he leads me into this room. I see this frail, emaciated figure in bed hooked up to these tubes. I introduce myself. We chat for a while. He says some nice things about my books. And then, because I know this is an issue for religious people who have AIDS, I say to him, do you ever fear that you're dying without God, that in some way your disease is a punishment for something you did? And he said to me, no, just the opposite. He said to me, the only good thing that's come out of this sickness, I found that something I always wanted to believe as true really is true. No matter how much you've messed up your life, you have not lost the love of God. He said to me, when I was a child, I thought I had to be perfect so that people would love me. I mean, if you're perfect, people have to love you. What's not to love? And I always tried to be perfect. And if I made a mistake, I tried to cover up for it and persuade people I was perfect so they would love me. I probably went into the clergy so people would think I was perfect and love me for it. 
And every time I did something that I knew was wrong, and every time I told a lie to cover up for myself, I was sure that God was as contemptuous of me as I was of myself. But lying here in the hospital with an illness I cannot recover from, I have learned that whatever I think of myself, God thinks better of me. He has not discarded me. He has not given up on me. He is present in this hospital room when I'm feeling all alone and scared and, and terrified. He said to me, I'm going to be getting out of the hospital next week, not because I'm getting better, but because there's nothing else they can do for me and they need the bed for somebody else. I don't know if my congregation will take me back now that they found out I'm gay and I have AIDS and I'm dying. I hope they will. There's one last sermon I have to preach to them. I have to tell them that what I've learned here, that no matter how much you've messed up your life, God still cares about you, that God loves us despite all our failings, that we have to go out and love ourselves and love our families and love our children despite their failings the way God loves us. There is a sense of cleansing. There is a message that you don't have to be perfect. There is the insight that God knows just who we are and loves us anyway. You can't get it from psychiatrists, from therapists. Their grace comes too cheaply. You can't get it from your family. It's very nice that they love you, but you expect them to love you. You need to know that somebody who really knows you in all of your depravity, in all of your imperfection, in all of your deceitfulness and selfishness, knows who you really are and loves you anyway. But what about those of us who don't feel depraved? What about those of us who don't feel really terrible, who, you know, all right, we're not perfect, but run-of-the-mill sorts of mistakes? What does God do for us? The difference between myself and the atheist, and I guess the functional definition of an atheist is somebody who doesn't care who wins next Saturday's football game. <laughs> the difference between myself and the atheist is not that I do good things and he does bad things. Every one of you knows atheists who are honest, decent, reliable, charitable people. There are atheists back home in Massachusetts whom I would trust to hold my wallet while I go for a jog sooner than the leadership of my congregation. The difference between us is not I do good things and he does bad things. The difference is this. When we have both spent ourselves doing the good things we believe in, when we have both exhausted ourselves working for world peace and for understanding between the races and the faiths, when we have knocked ourselves out, drying the tears of the bereaved and holding the hands of the faithful, and we're just too tired to do it any longer, I have a God to whom I can turn who renews my faith so I can run and not grow weary, so I can walk and not feel faint. The atheist can only look deeper inside himself, and sooner or later he will run dry. The difference is when we both want to do good, and we're tired, and we're spent, and we're exhausted. There is a God who replenishes my strength so I can keep on going. The fourth and perhaps most important gift I get from our religious faith, it cures me of the fear of death. It can't keep me from dying. Nobody has yet come up with a religion that helps people live forever. Although maybe you know the story of the man who comes to his rabbi and says, Rabbi, if I give up staying up late and drinking and chasing after women, and I come to your services every weekend, will that help me live longer? And the rabbi says, no, but it'll feel longer. 
Religion may not help you live longer, but I'm not sure that's the issue. I think as the author of the 23rd Psalm understood so well, it is not the experience of death, it is the valley of the shadow of death. It's the awareness of our mortality that frightens us, the sense that we're not going to be around forever. I think Americans betray themselves as a fundamentally non-religious people. No matter what we tell the Gallup poll and no matter what we print and stamp on our coins and bills, we are a fundamentally non-religious people because we are so afraid of dying. If our faith were more secure, death would not frighten us. Oatbran, there's your best example. People eat Oatbran because they think if I can get my cholesterol low enough, I will cheat death and I will live forever. My religion gives me the welcome news that there are easier ways to live forever than eating oat bran. <laughs> I don't know what will happen to me after I die. Well, some things I know. I know what will happen to my physical body. That is, it will be interred in the earth, and over the course of time, it will decay and return to the earth. That I understand. But I also know that there is a part of me which is not physical, a part which I am comfortable calling my soul, which less religiously inclined people will call personality or spirit. It is everything about me which is non-physical. My identity, my values, my memories, my sense of humor, everything about me which is not physical. Now, because it is not physical, it is not subject to death. My soul cannot die. That is not a religious dogma, that is a scientific fact. It can't be argued with. A soul is immortal because a soul is non-physical and not subject to death. That much I understand. What I don't understand is what that means. What does it mean for my soul to survive without a physical body to incarnate it? Will it know that it used to be me? Will it be able to recognize other disembodied souls if it doesn't have eyes and optic nerves to see with? Will it be happy to see these other disembodied souls if it doesn't have glands to control emotions? What will a bodiless, non-physical soul look like? Does it look like Casper the Friendly Ghost? Does it look like Patrick Swayze in the movie Ghost? I wish it looked like Patrick Swayze. <laughs> not only do I not know the answer, I can't even understand the question, what does it feel like for a soul to exist without a body? I know my soul will survive. I can't imagine. My three-dimensional brain can't get itself around the question of what does it feel like to exist without physicality. And so I don't think about it, except when I lecture to Christian audiences who ask me the questions about the world to come. What I do instead is I try and find my immortality in this world. I have come to believe that the world to come is not another place, but is another time. The world to come refers not to a different location, but to a different time. Hell is not a place full of fire and brimstone and little red figures with pitchforks. Hell is the understanding that if I was sarcastic to my daughter when she was a little girl, she will be sarcastic to my grandchildren and it'll be my fault. Hell is the realization that every time I tell a lie because the truth is embarrassing, I am voting to make this a more deceitful world for my family to live in. And heaven is not 
harps and wings and bright sunshine. Heaven is the awareness that every time I did something good, even if nobody thanked me for it, every time I held back the angry word and resisted temptation, and nobody could possibly have known how hard it was for me to do that, the world is changed by the good thing that I did, permanently changed for the better. Oscar Wilde once said the nicest feeling in the world is to do a good deed anonymously and have somebody find out. <laughs> My religious faith tells me that every time I do a good deed anonymously, somebody finds out, and the world is permanently changed by the residue of it. Some years ago, I read a book on liberation theology. Are you familiar with liberation theology? It's a school of thought that originated among Roman Catholics, mostly in Latin America, that says the church should be on the side of the poor and the oppressed, not on the side of the rich and powerful. And for some reason, this is very controversial. Anyway, in this book on liberation theology, they tell the story of a young Roman Catholic priest in a certain Central American country who was so outraged by the oppressive nature of the government that he left his church and joined a guerrilla group that were fighting against the government. And one day his band of guerrillas were surrounded by government forces. They were going to be captured and maybe killed. And one of the other guerrillas says to this former priest, Well, Father, what does your God have to say to us in a situation like this? And the priest has no answer. But as I read that, it occurred to me, I think I know what the answer is. What God says to people in a situation like that might be, I cannot guarantee that you will survive, and I cannot guarantee that you will win. I can only guarantee that what you're doing will not be in vain, that the world will be a permanently braver and cleaner place because you cared enough about this to put your life on the line for it. I know the tradition among the Latter-day Saints. I know it and I admire it to spend two years in missionary activity. I imagine there are some people here who have done that and some people here who will be doing that. And one thing I want to tell you, you will go out and ring a lot of doorbells and talk to a lot of people, and you may not make many converts. You may come away terribly frustrated. You may feel like a failure. Why did I waste all that time and effort? I want you to know it's not wasted. The world is permanently changed by the things you do along those lines. Faith is strengthened. God is enhanced even if you don't get anybody to sign on because of the example of your caring enough to do that. When a young man out of the Mormon church, a Trevor Maddock or a Sean Bradley who has a career in professional athletics, spends two years of his very limited playing span in missionary activity and wonders, is he making a mistake? I want him and everyone else to know he's not. That the world is permanently cleansed and strengthened by a gesture like that. I want to conclude with two stories. The first comes out of the classic South American novel, 100 Years of Solitude, by the Colombian author Gabriel Garcia Marquez. It's a fantastic, weird book, and at one chapter of... Uh, no, I say that as a compliment. Garcia Marquez would be pleased to hear his book described that way. In one chapter of the book, he tells the following weird story. There was a small town afflicted by a mysterious ailment, a kind of a contagious Alzheimer's disease, where people lose their memory. They forget the names of the people around them. They forget the names of everyday objects. One young man, unaffected by the disease, tries to forestall its effects. He goes around labeling everything. This is a table. 
This is a window. This is a cow. It has to be milked every day. When he has labeled everything in town, he goes to the town center and puts up two signs. The first sign says, the name of our village is Macondo, and the second sign says, there is a god. What is Garcia Marquez trying to say in that strange parable? I think he's trying to tell us that as you get older, you will forget a lot of things you once knew. It's already started, hasn't it? You've forgotten your high school trigonometry and American history courses? Over the course of time, you'll forget the name of the guy who took you to your senior prom. You'll forget the phone number of the first house you lived in. Garcia Marquez is saying, don't worry about it, that's all fine. As long as you don't forget two things. Never forget the community in which you are a part. Because God is found in communities. God is found in the way people relate to each other. And never forget that God exists. And that very briefly leads me to the second story I found in the book by Elie Wiesel. The day that man comes before God on his heavenly throne and says to him, which is harder, to be God or to be man? And God says, what are you talking about? Much harder to be God. I mean, what do you have to worry about? Wife, kids, job, that's it. I've got the whole universe, planets, galaxies, everything depends on me. Man says, yeah, I suppose. But you have infinite power and infinite time. I can operate with a deadline. If I had all the time in the world, I could run a universe also. God says, you don't know what you're talking about. Much harder to be God. Man says, how can you be so sure? You've never been human. I've never been divine. Tell you what, let's change places for one second. That's all. One second. Let me be God. You be man. Then we'll change back. We'll have settled the argument once and for all. Reluctantly, God agrees, gets off his heavenly throne for one second. Man gets on, and as Wiesel tells the story, in the one second that man is on the heavenly throne, he refuses to give God his throne back. And ever since then, man has been in charge of the world. I find that a frightening story for two reasons. The first reason is, if there is no God and human beings are in charge of the world, as Dostoevsky had one of his characters say in The Brothers Karamazov, if there is no God, everything is permitted. Why shouldn't we kill and why shouldn't we steal and why shouldn't we rape and why shouldn't we lie and why shouldn't the strong take advantage of the weak if there is no God to say it's wrong? But more importantly, for those of us who would not take advantage of a situation like that, if there is no God, who is there to inspire us? And who is there to guide us? And who is there to pick us up and wipe us off when we've fallen and dirtied ourselves? And who is there to replenish our love and our hope and our strength when we've used it up? And who is there to promise that what is not finished in our lifetime will be finished in a later lifetime because he will link one life to another? If there is no God, we are all by ourselves in this universe which is too big and too vast and too cold for us to run. So who needs God? I know I do, and I know we do. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Coming Closer to God with thoughts from Dale G. Renland and Harold S. Kushner. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.